listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Just listening to the news, hearing Acosta uh, resigning in the United States over the Epstein situation, and just his quote where he says, it would be selfish of me to continue talking about this 12-year-old case instead of this tremendous economy. It would be selfish of me. Yeah, as if this is the act of generosity, of selflessness for the American people, is that he's selflessly declining the opportunity to further defend how he let a monster who preyed on vulnerable young women, teenage girls... He passed up the opportunity to hold him accountable and let him go with a virtual slap on the wrist. And now accountability has come for him. And he wants to talk about how how resigning in a completely untenable situation uh, is an act of selflessness on his part. Good, good riddance. I hope this isn't the end of that for him. But I'm glad that it's the end of him in the American government. Um... My name is Edward Keenan, as you will know if you've been listening this week. I am in for Alan Carter, who is no doubt out somewhere enjoying his vacation, continuing to work on his TAM. I expect he'll be back next week. Uh, I saw on the Alan Carter uh, vacation front, I saw on the uh, CP24 screen up here uh, in the newsroom, we keep tabs on all the news from all over the place, and there was a, a little graphic that said, A wonderful day to be outdoors. Now, as as regular listeners will know, uh, in my regular job, I work at the Toronto Star. So I was there this morning doing my regular job, and I had to walk all of five minutes down the street to get here. And I came just a dripping mess. It just is so muggy down here by the lake. I made the mistake of wearing a jacket, <laughs> and I got soaked. So, you know, I guess it's a good day to be outside if you are in your air-conditioned car. And if you are, welcome to the program. It, it is a, a lovely day to in, enjoy air conditioning. And, uh, and you know, the temperature at least suggests that it's a lovely day to be outside as well. 26 degrees, uh, or 20 degrees right now, high of 26 today. Uh, but, boy, there was a little bit of humidity. Um, speaking of the weather, I don't know if Alan, where he is on his vacation. They don't, they don't give me this information. But I hope it's not Italy, for his sake. Uh, a story, I, I said in a bunch of places, I'm reading now from the local, but I saw pictures on BuzzFeed about the weather in Italy, weather that caused them to uh, call a state of emergency. And now, many places call a state of emergency when there's a hurricane and big floods or something like that, but they got to do it a little differently, Italian-style. Uh, it was hailstones the size of oranges. This, and in, in some of the pictures, maybe the size of grapefruits. Uh, they were smashing windows in people's cars, like, like the windows are just destroyed. Uh, 18 people were seriously injured in a hailstorm in Italy. And so I'm grateful to be sweating here. I'm grateful that I'm not in that. Speaking of something else I'm grateful about, um, yesterday, Mayor John Tory announced an expansion of Toronto's bike share uh, program that will add 105 new stations, uh, 1,200 new bikes. Uh, The bike share program, if anybody out there is unfamiliar with it, like many in other cities, uh, there are some stations 
all around the city, uh, a few, few thousand now, um, 465 total stations uh, in the city uh, with 8,550 bikes. Uh, and they're sort of locked in there, and using your credit card or your membership key, you can unlock a, lock a bike for a half an hour, take it for a ride, drop it off at any of the other stations anywhere in the city. And I think this is good news, and not just because there's now a station like less than a block from my house. Um, but I think I, I may be typical of, of who this is going to benefit, but also who, how, how this works uh, for the greater good kind of thing, is that I haven't been on a bike in probably five or six years. Uh, there, there was a time when I bought a cheap one, a Canadian tire, and thought I would ride to work, and I realized that from where I live in the junction, uh, it's actually like an hour for me to cycle uh, along the lakeshore, which is the route that feels safest to work, and then an hour home at the end of the day, and on a hot day, and it's mostly uphill on the way home, Uh, It was just a bit much for me. So I haven't been on a bike in several years. But, for instance, uh, the UPX stops just a little further from my house than I would want to walk, right? takes me 45 minutes on the subway to get to work. Uh, During rush hour, it can take 45 minutes or an hour to drive. Uh, Off rush hour, it's like 15 minutes. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but... The UPX would revolutionize that. It's like eight minutes to Union Station, which is just a few blocks from where I work, but it's a little further than I want to walk. Uh, there's not really a convenient like commuter parking lot there that's cheap. Costs costs a buck or two, two bucks or more to transfer from the TTC bus to that. So it's like, eh, I'm not going to do that. But now there's there's a bike station right next to my house. There's a bike station right next to the UPX. I can... I can buy a membership, get down there in five minutes. I'm, it cuts my work commute in half. And, and you I, get some exercise. And I think a lot of people who are not hardcore committed cyclists, it's like, yeah, they, they'd take a bike over to the store, right? They'd take a bike uh, to go to the park. They'd, they'd, you know, for little short trips to the subway station, to the local store, to, to whatever... But they're not going to buy a $1,200 bike that might get stolen. Uh, they're, they're not hardcore committed cyclists. And so for a system like this to work, what you need is a really like coherent network where there's lots and lots of stations, lots and lots of bikes. It's relatively inexpensive, and it's really easy. And that's what we've got now, expanding out into East York, out into towards the borders of the old city of York. Uh, the next frontier, probably, to try and uh, expand that further is, you know, Scarborough, Etobicoke, North York. There it's a little bit more complicated because it's more spread out, right? And it's harder to have stations near where people live because people's homes are further about. They may need some kind of dockless situation out there, which is what they have in some other cities now with scooters and with bikes. Where so you, don't, you just leave the bike? You just leave it wherever. Huh. Um, and there's like a locking mechanism on the wheels that you unlock with your credit card or whatever. Right, right. Um and and then usually with that, it's like the old cars to go, where then they have guys who go around with trucks or whatever and pick, pick them up, up and take them to stations where you can pick them up. Or you can just see on your app where there are some nearish to your house. But oh, that's cool. Um, but I mean, that, that, that'd be presumably some future phase. But I think in terms of providing, like, uh, not thinking about just, like, how you uh, fight car congestion or how you expand the transit system, but, like, how do we move people around and make it easier cheaper, more convenient uh, to move people around in a city where the transit 
subway system is almost full. The roads are almost full. I feel like this kind of like opt-in easy solution for people who might not be committed cyclists, but who could use a bike for short trips, I, I think that's a plus. And uh, I know Sue Ann Levy in the Toronto Sun today was uh, complaining about the cost of this. Uh, and it's not without cost, right? Um, I, it's a $7.5 million expansion. And in terms of its operating subsidy, they're just like it's about a buck, a buck and a quarter a ride right now that they're giving an operating subsidy. But that's kind of in line with the TTC, which has one third of its operating budget is subsidized by taxpayers, right? So, which comes out to just about a buck, just over a buck a ride, right? On some lines like the Shepherd Subway and the Vaughn Subway Extension, I've heard estimates of as much as like $10 a ride subsidy. Uh, and we we subsidize uh, car travel to the tune of a couple hundred million dollars a, a year in road improvements and all of that. So I think this is a relatively modest in, investment, but I expect that it makes the the bike sharing system uh, all the more all the more viable. And if you're sick of hearing about bikes, just before we go to a break, a little bit of news about fast cars. Fast cars for you. The uh, Honda Indy, and they're not. I, as far as I know, we have no sponsored relationship with them or anything like that. This is not a advertorial content. This is just actually I was interested to hear because it, it's something I was thinking about. Like maybe later this afternoon, I should see if my kids uh, wanted to get to see it because I have watched car racing on TV, but I've I've heard from lots of people that like seeing them roar by at full speed in person is actually the thing you want to do. That's mm-hmm. where you really get the full sense of it. And today, for the first time, apparently, I think the first time, but um, the Honda Indy has Fan Friday or whatever. And it's uh, if if you bring a, a voluntary donation to the Make-A-Wish Canada Foundation, you get free general admission for, for the events today, which go right through till 6.30 p.m. or something like that. And so for people who, who aren't experienced enough to buy a ticket and see the Indy racing in, in person, uh, it's a chance to go and see that. It, I think it's a first-come, first-served thing. There's no tickets, so it's just general admission. Uh, but if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, uh, down on the Western Lakeshore near the CNE, uh, Honda Indy has that make-a-donation-get-in going on right now. I know uh, one of the big phenomena on social media that I've seen is people uh, noticing the spooky coincidence that they're having some offline conversation with their wife in front of the TV and they're talking about a Florida vacation or something. And then they go on to Facebook or they go on to Twitter, they go on to Google and they see nothing but targeted ads for them about Florida vacations and they do-do-do-do-do-do. Uh, there's some question about how much of uh, our day-to-day life is being picked up by our uh, home assistants, Google Assistant, by Alexa, by Amazon Echo, or just by our smartphones. And two stories today sort of point to an answer that means it may not just be the computers that are listening. It may be actual people. One in the Associated Press today says, human workers can listen to Google Assistant recordings they, uh, Google contractors regularly listen to and review some recordings of what people say to artificial intelligence system Google Assistant via their phone 
or through smart speakers such as Google Home. Uh, Another story today. Amazon admits that Alexa voice recordings are saved indefinitely. The voice recordings and transcripts of customers' interactions with its Alexa voice assistant are saved indefinitely. Uh, So in the case of the Google story, sometimes there are real people listening to uh, background conversations that may not even be intended to be picked up by the Google Assistant or whatever. And in the case of Amazon, those kinds of recordings, and in, in many cases transcripts of them, are saved and archived indefinitely, which raises lots of kind of privacy questions, for which we go, as we so often do, to uh, the CEO of Boceron Security and Global News Radio's cybersecurity expert, David Shipley, joining me on the phone now. Hi, David. Happy to be here. People have often suspected that that not just when they say, hey, Google, can you look this up for me, but that whatever conversations, fights with their spouse, you know, things that they're talking to about their children might be being picked up. And it seems like there's some confirmation of that here. And not just that, that, that human beings are listening on the other end, too. Absolutely. There's a bit of a mythology that these devices are magic computers that can just answer all of our wishes but they're really not that magic. They require a lot of training and learning and still a lot of human intervention. And so there are still thousands of employees at Amazon and Google who are listening to these recordings. We're told with the personal information stripped out, and yet in the latest case with Google, with information from European citizens that actually identified uh, grandchildren's names, locations, and other sensitive data, which has landed Google in some pretty hot water with Europe data privacy regulators. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a, a, a online joke, kind of, of people's nightmares about their Google search history being uh, made public. But it seems here that they're, they're not just their interactions with Google, but their interactions with their own family members and whatnot are... It, it, some of them have been leaked, but, but they're regularly being reviewed by human beings and and potentially archived. I mean, this seems like a nightmare all on its own uh, with far-reaching kind of privacy implications. It has massive implications. And these companies are exposing themselves to really interesting ethical and legal problems. In the case of Amazon's disclosure that humans were reviewing content, it came out in news, news reporting that some Amazon employees believe they may have encountered the sounds that may have indicated that someone was being sexually assaulted. And so they were left with the ethical situation of, do they try and identify who this was and where it came from? Uh, and the reaction from the company was, nope, not our problem. I mean, that's what if they hear, you wonder how far they go with that, because what if they hear, you know, a murder? What if they hear the sexual assault is very, very uh, serious and important? If they have evidence of crime, it seems like they ought to turn it over. But I think for a lot of us, there's a feeling they shouldn't really be recording that evidence of a crime in the first place. Exactly. And in fact, this isn't a hypothetical. Your question around the murder in the United States, there's already been a subpoena and a legal battle over Alexa recordings around the times in which someone was murdered in a U.S. household. And eventually they were able to obtain the information. Unfortunately, it didn't gain any data. That's not to say that accidental data gain is not entirely uh, possible. In the case of this latest Google Home story of a thousand recordings that were accidentally leaked that were being handled by people, uh, the reports say that up to 150-some were actually uh, erroneously recorded. What I mean is they were things that recorded without people intentionally asking their device 
hey, Alexa, or hey, Google, and ask me a question. It just picked up on the midst of a conversation because it thought it heard the safe words. And that's one risk, is it just mistakenly hears the safe words. There is another risk. And what's that? Well, the other risk is that we're putting wiretaps in everyone's home that are perfectly susceptible to uh, law enforcement, uh, from a legal perspective, uh, being able to turn them on and listen. And in many cases, the uh, legal capabilities to do so would require the providers to make sure that you didn't even know you were being spied on. Um, And this is some terrifying stuff when you think about the potential for abuse by authorities. Then, of course, there's the potential of if, if a vulnerability exists in this infrastructure or in the, in the Google or Amazon infrastructure to control it, that malicious third parties can be spying on us as well. Yeah, of course, in the whole hacking situation, like, I mean, we worry about that with all of our data, not just what the company is going to use for, but what a, a third party who hacks in and gets access to that data could use it for. So these are really far-reaching implications. On the legal front, you envision a situation, too, where not just police or... Um, authorities might subpoena information that that's a result of a crime but i i'm trying to imagine a, a divorce proceeding uh where where me as the account holder is trying to get access to my my own uh devices information to see if there's evidence against my spouse or my family members i mean it seems like that civil law is also a, a frontier here that that offers oh there's, there's big lots implications. of potential for havoc yeah, no, the, and, and, and the thing is, people assume that when these technologies rolled out that these legal implications have been well and thoroughly considered and that their rights are being properly protected before uh, devices hit the market, and that is 100% absolutely not the case. The implications haven't been thought through. Canadian law is laughably absent in protecting privacy. You know, if Amazon was to have a massive breach of Canadians' privacy in the same way, or Google, in the same way as what's happened in Europe, the most they'll be fined here in Canada is $100,000. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Europe, the fines are in the hundreds of millions of dollars and are finally holding these companies accountable. Yeah, you think fines that size might actually approach being a deterrent for these billion-dollar companies where $100,000 is easy. It's like a parking ticket for a delivery company, just the cost of doing business. Um, but, and, and, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I think the one thing that many people who are concerned hearing this might wonder, is is in addition to Canadian law being strengthened, which is really in the hands of our politicians, short of not having these devices at all, um, is there anything people can do to to try, try and prevent their devices from accidentally picking up conversations they don't want them to hear? There's not much you can do to accidentally prevent it. I wish these devices had more physical buttons to ensure they could be actually turned off and that the physical button prevented it because it's currently software that controls that. I would say in the case of Google accounts, the best thing you can do is actually uh, ensure that you erase and set it to erase your information after three months. In the case of Amazon, they keep the records indefinitely, so that's a big concern. Now, uh, I don't have any of these home devices. I do have a a smartphone, like almost everybody, uh, an iPhone, and I keep Siri turned off because I don't find it, the voice commands convenient and all of that. But, uh, uh, you know, my phone is likely, microphone is likely still picking up some of my conversations, or is it? Here's the good news about Apple's approach with Siri. is very different than uh, Amazon and Google's approach. 
And the difference is actually uh, Apple doesn't associate your Siri recordings with your Apple ID and automatically deletes the recording because they're not keeping it to mine ever more information about you and sell you additional ads or products or services. They're genuinely offering you the service, and you pay the premium in the Apple ecosystem for the devices and the software because you're not sacrificing your privacy. All right. Uh, D- David Shipley of Boseron Security and our cybersecurity expert, uh, thanks, I guess. <laughs> Although, as so often when we talk to you, I, I find the conversations are, are somewhat creep me out a little bit, but I do appreciate the information. You're always welcome. And remember, it's not going to get better until Canadians get truly and absolutely upset. Hold politicians accountable and get our laws changed. The elections in October, don't let this uh, be forgotten. All right. Thank you, David Shipley. A story uh, that came to my attention through CBC News today about an experimental lakes area being set up in northwestern Ontario by the International Institute for Sustainable Development. This network of lakes in northern Ontario is very remote, pristine. Uh, They're not fed by any uh, significant upstream sources. Uh, They're not near big cities or anything like that. They are relatively, as much as places in Canada are, sort of untouched uh, by human uh, contact. Uh, And yet the... uh, International Institute for Sustainable Development is setting up a research project there because they want to see how much, in an environment like that, how much plastic they find in the water. Joining us on the phone now to discuss the project is Mike Rennie, who's an assistant professor at Lakehead University and a research fellow with the Experimental Lakes Area Project. Uh, Welcome to the program, Mike. Thanks for having me, Ed. Um, so, as the CBC uh, noted, you know, we seem to find plastics everywhere. Dead whales turn up with uh, plastic garbage in their bellies. We've all seen pictures of ocean areas that are littered with plastic water bottles. Um, what kind of plastic do you expect to find up in these sort of remote lakes of northwestern Ontario? Uh, that's a good question, Ed. So, I, I think what we see a lot of in the news uh, in particular, and when we think of like the big garbage patches out in the Pacific and and dead whales in the lake and the like are, are these sort of macro plastics like shopping bags and old fishing gear and that sort of stuff. What, what we're really interested in looking at, particularly in these very remote lakes, are, are what we refer to as microplastics. So the technical definition of, of microplastics is basically any piece of plastic that's less than five millimeters in any one diameter or, or length of measurement. And the the reason why we expect to find them there, uh, although we're not sure in what concentrations are, really it seems like wherever we look for these things, uh, we find them there. I mean, <laughs> we found them in in beer, in tap water, uh, you know, uh, in remote lakes in sort of uh, pristine alpine areas, and so the the. I guess the, the, the next sort of question is how does it get there? And one of the things that we're trying to evaluate uh, with this research that we're doing this summer is the degree to which this stuff is coming in through the atmosphere, so coming in through 
through the air and being deposited in the lakes. Yeah, I mean, you, you imagine that if, uh, you know, 10,000 years from now, uh, if, if human beings are extinct and an alien civilization discovers the Earth, they might, they might find this, to assume this is a naturally occurring part of the environment because of the way that it's found everywhere. Um, but, yeah. but we don't believe that to be the case, right? It's getting there somehow. It's, well, that's it. So, and, and it's because we're looking, the lakes that we're investigating as part of the research this summer, they're all headwater lakes. So it's not like we've got water flowing in from an upstream town or something like that, where we'd expect large pieces of plastic to be breaking down in the lakes. If it comes from anywhere, the, the only sort of reasonable source to assume where this stuff is coming from in these lakes is going to be from the atmosphere. And we're actually going to have um, some atmospheric samplers, sort of both passive and active, that are going to be measuring how much we can uh, collect of this stuff that's just floating around in the air as well. Now, do 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 we know when we're talking about microplastics, uh, as yeah. you are, and and especially when we're dealing with lake water and whatnot, is are, yeah. is it um, accurate to to describe lakes like that? It is contaminated with this. Is this dangerous? Oh, yeah, that's something else that I think we're, uh, as a scientific community, really trying to catch up on, particularly at, at what we would call environmentally relevant concentrations. So, I mean, if you take a whole bunch of plastic and, and put a fish or some zooplankton in a container with a load of plastic, you know, it's not good for them. And, and that's that's fairly reasonable to expect. But what we don't know is that when you have concentrations of plastics that you might actually encounter in the environment, say in Lake Ontario or Lake Winnipeg, or what we might expect levels in those systems to be like 50 years from now, what kind of response do we see from, from organisms in the lake? And that's, and that's something I think that we, we have a poor understanding of currently. There's been some laboratory experiments but again, even in those lab experiments, we're not really yet dealing with sort of environmentally relevant concentrations. Um, but uh, that's that's something that we're hoping to be able to address sort of down the road with with maybe some experiments at ELA. Um, but is I, that's all early sort of days. We're we're working on getting funding and all that sort of stuff. As a, I think as a first pass, what's really important, I think, is to just try and see if we can lay down how much of this stuff do we see floating around in these lakes in the first place, just from as a, like a background level, right? So where, where we don't have industry, where we don't have cottages, it's just a body of water in the middle of the forest. What's the background level that we would expect just from being there? Right? From being so, in the world. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, I don't want to be a caricature of the Toronto guy who thinks that everything, you know, that uh, everything revolves around us. But i got to imagine <laughs> if... Um, if these remote lakes, if we find what you expect to find, which is some level of microplastics there, then places like Lake Ontario, where my drinking water comes from, must must have mm-hmm. significantly higher levels. And is that something oh, yeah. that average people should be really concerned about uh, in their drinking water lakes or, or the, the local sort of uh, b- biological environment they live in? Yeah. I mean, again, it's a good question. We We really don't know... Uh, there's been no sort of demonstrated studies to say this, at these kind of environmental concentrations or levels of exposure that we have as, as humans that we should really be worried about this stuff. 
there is sort of the aesthetic side, which is, you know, if I, you know, go to drink my water and stuff, I don't really want bits of plastic floating around <laughs> in it. Um, but, but there, yeah, we really don't know about uh, health concerns for this stuff yet anyway. Um, I would say, though, that, like, if, if it is something that people are worried about, uh, you know, if you're going to get water from somewhere, whether it's from a tap, which we know in, you know, at least in major centers in Canada, is safe to drink from, um, you're going to get a whole lot of less plastic in something like your municipal drinking water than you are going to from, say, a plastic water bottle because it's, you know, wrapped in it, right? So, um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right, Mike Rennie uh, from Lakehead University and the Experimental Lakes Area Project, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm going fishing. I'm going to grab my fishing pole. Head on down to the fishing hole Ain't gonna spend no more time wishing I'm gonna fishing I'm gonna fishing You may have thought, as I uh, would have, that uh, we're beyond the age where uh, a full-grown adult woman would be asked to bring a male chaperone to her job with her, uh, but apparently not. Um, I don't know. Have you heard of the Billy Graham rule? It's uh, something that some Christian uh, men subscribe to, and the rule basically says uh, once you're married, you'll, you're never alone in a, a room with a woman who's not your wife, right? Uh, what about uh, your mother? I assume, what about your mother? I assume you're... <laughs> your personal relations like your mother and your okay. sister might be excluded. But, okay. but, but basically the, the rule, the shorthand version of the rule is that uh, once you're married, you're never alone in a room with a member of the opposite sex who, who you're not, who's not your wife. And uh, the reason they, this is seen as being respectful to your wife because, uh, because there's no question that you are going to develop some kind of intimate relationship with somebody. Um, if, if you're never alone with them. Uh, and recently when it's been invoked, uh, I've seen also there's an added dimension where people say in the Me Too era, uh, you, you know, and famously the vice president of the United States uh, lives by this rule apparently, uh, that in the Me Too era, uh, there's never any question or suspicion that anything improper happened, right? Like if you have a, an employee who works for you uh, and you have a closed door meeting with them, you know, and they were out to get you, maybe they could say you said something or did something improper in that meeting, but also the rest of your staff can start whispering, right? They were in there for half an hour during that performance review. What was happening? So you're saying right? Mike Pence would have a chaperone with that person? That's that's my understanding, is that Mike Pence would have another member of his staff sit in on that meeting, which uh, lots of people, I think, have rightly pointed out, um, puts, puts women uh in a disadvantage in that workplace right mm -hmm. um and and presumably if you were a, a male underling who ha observed this rule uh like say the vice president was a woman and you were uh her press secretary right. and you had that rule it would put you in a similar disadvantage you can never have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with your boss you can never no. have the kind of confidential um off feedback the meeting or, yeah. off the record yeah. meeting uh but there's a, a whole new dimension added to that story. I feel like today, and I want to I want to just put a shout out to people to see if they what their opinions of it are. Uh, and it comes from a, a Mississippi 
a politician um, whose name is Robert Foster, who lives, he says, by the uh, Billy Graham rule, and he's running for governor of the state. And Mississippi Today reporter Larison Campbell, who's a woman, she's a lesbian, which is not, uh, she says, you know, he does, she doesn't know if he knows that. She doesn't know if it actually factors in. I mean, she's still a woman. Uh, but she had, she had put in a, a request to shadow him for a day, as reporters often do. Uh, and she was told that his campaign director told her uh, that she, she, she would have to bring a male chaperone along. She'd have to bring a, like a male work colleague along with her to be able to shadow him for a day because he wouldn't ride in a vehicle alone with her. Uh, someone might accuse him of having an extramarital ref- affair. She talked to uh, CBC's As It Happens Today about it, and, and she said essentially in there that, first of all, she thinks it's blatant sexism. She turned down that request. Wow, good for her. Um, she is going to continue covering his campaign, but obviously she's not going to get any uh, much FaceTime with him uh, if, if she needs to bring a babysitter uh, in order to do it. But she says, you know, that, that twofold, uh, she says, uh, I'm going to quote her now. Um, but I mean, honestly, to me, it has blatant sexism. First of all, you know, you're saying this woman, people aren't going to see her as a reporter first, even though it's a work context, she's a woman, therefore people see her as a sexual object first. And secondly, this is his problem, Right. He put the burden on me saying, I need you to bring a male chaperone around to make me feel comfortable. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I think this kind of rule, living by this kind of rule in your life, I, I think when she says it's his problem, whether or not it's a problem, it's his rule that he lives by, right? And so you would think if, uh, if you're going to have this rule, then you have taking care of it. You've solved your own problem by having a staff member who stays with you all of the time, right? I actually have shadowed a lot of politicians, uh, and the only one who, who, you know, I spent a day with Mayor John Tory uh, multiple times, and I was always accompanied by another member of his staff, right? Yeah, like, it's handler. not like he's yeah. driving himself around. No. Uh, the only politician I can think of, I've, I've, had, I've interviewed lots of politicians, uh, men and women, one-on-one in their office, but the only politician I can think who I followed around for a day uh, and we were the only two people in the car was Rob Ford, right? Wow. When I shadowed Rob Ford, not before he was mayor, right? Uh, he was driving and I was sitting in the passenger seat and that was it. That sounds uh, like a good time. But for the most part, politicians have staff and you would think if you're running for governor, you just have your press secretary with- or whoever ride along with you all day. The one thing I just say, though, is that like when you're running a political campaign, I, I suspect the woman here says he might get positive press out of this. He might get sympathy. And I think I got to think that, that to some extent that's his angle, because, uh, you know, you deal with the press all the time. You know, your interactions with them are going to be reported. You typically want them to write about you. And so I, I can't think that he hasn't planned this in his staffing and that somehow sending this message to this reporter is a way to get the message he wants out. Anyway, that's all the time I have. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Bring your own man.